Okay, so we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 16. Um, it's the parable of the shrewd manager, which uh, is perhaps not so well known, a little bit more obscure. But it does uh, provide part of the Bible's teaching about wealth. Um, and the Bible has a lot to say about that. Um, so I just want to give a little bit of a framework before we actually jump into uh, that particular parable. Now, the Bible's view on wealth, money, is a very balanced one, um, which has just quoted a proverb. Let me give you another one. Uh, Proverbs 30, um, verse 8 and 9, it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may, may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. That verse summarizes the Bible's position on wealth. Neither poverty nor riches. So the Bible would say no to what is sometimes called the prosperity gospel. Uh, the idea that uh, God wants you to be perfectly healthy all the time and materially wealthy uh, all the time. Now, it is true. In the Old Testament, blessing is uh, seen in very material terms. Agricultural productivity, um, lots of children. You know, ble blessing is very physical in the Old Testament. Um, but when we come to the New Testament, that language of blessing is, is kind of... Uh, primarily seen in areas of spiritual blessing. So Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There is no promise of material riches in the Bible. Rather, there are lots of warnings about the dangers of excessive wealth and frequent commands to be generous. So in sum, if God does bless you with wealth, and it's not wrong, but if God blesses you with wealth, make sure you use it wisely. That's one half of the Bible's teaching. But it also says no to the poverty gospel. You may have heard of the, um, the prosperity gospel, but there's also a poverty gospel. In, in the history of the church, some people have taught that wealth is sinful, uh, possessions are bad, that God wants you to live this life of uh, total simplicity, wants you to be poor, wants you to be homeless, wants you to be single. <laughs> and so uh, monks took vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Um, and the danger with that is that you end up with a very life-denying view of um, reality. Uh, Paul in 1 Timothy 4 says, everything is good if it is received with thanksgiving. You know, the, the material world, um, um, all, all of the material things that, of life uh, are there to be enjoyed. They're not wrong in and of themselves. And people will often misquote that Bible verse. They'll say, money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So, yes, indeed, the love of money can... Uh, be the cause of evil but it's not the only one 
So, in summary, material wealth isn't sinful, but it can become an idol if you love it too much. So that's our orientation here. Neither poverty nor riches. Both have their dangers. So let's turn to Luke 16, uh, the parable of the shrewd manager. Uh, the parable itself, verses 1 to 8. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? 30 tonnes of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 24. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. So let's just think about the parable itself and then look at the lessons um, that Jesus draws from it. Um, <clears throat> so last week we were thinking about the, the prodigal son, weren't we? Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a shift in audience here in verse 1. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, unlike the previous parable which was told because uh, the tax collectors and sinners were gathering round to hear Jesus and Jesus was really aiming it at them. Now he's talking to the disciples. So, so this is teaching for believers. This is about discipleship. Having said that, the Pharisees are not absent either, as verse 14 uh, will show us. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. But the primary audience is the disciples. And so Jesus tells this story about a rich man who, who has a manager who's responsible for his uh, dealings and uh, the manager's accused of wasting the master's possessions. Now, presumably the, the manager had a very responsible position uh, administering his master's estate. Unfortunately, he hasn't done a very good job of it, and he's accused of wasting the uh, owner's resources in uh, chapter one, in verse one. There, wasting his possessions. It's the same word that you find in chapter 15 about the prodigal son who squandered um, the, the inheritance. So it's the same idea: squandering, wasting. Um, and obviously, the master has to act. He has to do something. Uh, so he calls the manager in to give an account and the charges turn out to be true and the manager loses his job um, but let's be I think we have to be clear here that, that nothing dishonest was going on uh, there was nothing immoral happening here uh, the steward was guilty of financial mismanagement it seems but not outright immorality uh, but he's shown to be incompetent 
and uh, he gets the sack. And then he has this little soliloquy in verse 3, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. His options are not very appealing. He's not cut out for manual labour uh, and he doesn't want to start begging, which would have been very shameful considering the sort of high position that he had. So he needed to find a solution. How can I make my way in this world even though I'm, I'm going to lose my job? Um, and so he comes up with uh, a solution that will give him the possibility of employment and uh, goodwill from sympathetic associates in the future. And so he comes up with this plan. He recognises the predicament that losing his job will place him in. Uh, and with his fate sealed, he, he thinks about how can I improve my status um, in the future? And so that's what he decides to do. He will, he will call in his master's debtors and basically reduce their debts. Uh, and so he goes through the inventory of bills, one debtor at a time. He calls them in and reduces their debts. Now, these debts were agricultural, which suggests that the master was either selling food or lending money in exchange for commodities, or maybe he was renting out land and being paid in produce. Um, something like that is going on. Um, now, commentators will go into a lot of detail about what exactly is the manager doing here? Uh, is he um, removing interest charges? Uh, is he reducing his commission? Um, yeah, we just don't have enough detail to know exactly what was going on. The obvious reading is that he's simply reducing the debt. He's just saying you used to owe this amount, but now you, you only have to pay this amount. Um, and whatever is actually going on here, the broad intent is clear. The steward wants to win friends so that he will be treated favorably um, after he loses his job. The point of his action is to lessen the debtor's burdens and to create future goodwill towards himself. And these are significant um, amounts here. Uh, 800 gallons of olive oil would fetch about 1,000 denarii, which is the equivalent of over three years' salary. And 1,000 measures of wheat would have cost up to 3,000 denarii, which is eight to 10 years' salary. And we can assume that there were other uh, clients who had debts reduced as well. And so the parable ends with the master's commendation of the servant. He commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Um, <clears throat> so he's not a dishonest manager. Uh, there's no hint that he's done anything wrong, um, but, it, but he, he's been um, incompetent and in squandering and not handling the, the, the resources given to him uh, wisely. So although the, the master isn't happy about the loss, he appreciates the cleverness of the ploy and its success. And that's where the parable ends. And then Jesus adds the comment, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Um, he has been shrewd 
Uh, he's acted with calculated self-interest. And Jesus commends him for it. And he says that the people of the world show more foresight and are more shrewd in their dealings with people than are God's children, the people of the light. And that leads on to the lessons that Jesus wants to draw from this parable. So let's look at the application or the lessons in verses 9 to 13. Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? <clears throat> no one can serve two masters, Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. <clears throat> so there are three points here about discipleship in the kingdom of God. Jesus uses this phrase, I tell you, to emphasize the application. We're not to copy the manager's methods, um, but there are some general principles here that Jesus wants us to learn. And the first one is this, invest in eternity. Verse 9, invest in eternity. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So the parable commends prudence on the part of the manager. But look at it from the debtor's perspective. If you're a debtor and somebody reduces the debt, it is unimaginable generosity, isn't it? Um, there was a, a case a few years back of a couple who had their debt wiped off by a judge. They'd borrowed about £6,000 for home improvements, but they hadn't been able to pay it off. And then with interest and penalty charges, the debt grew to nearly £400,000. Obviously, they had no means of paying it back. And so the judge ruled uh, and wrote the debt off. How do you think that couple felt about the judge? He's probably their favourite person in the world, wasn't he, at that moment? Um, and don't you think that if that judge ever found himself in need, he might gain favour from that grateful couple? He'd certainly be on their Christmas card list, wouldn't they? And so, in one sense, the manager shows incredible generosity in reducing the debts. And that's the point Jesus is drawing from verse 9. He says, use your wealth to win friends. But not just any friends. It's so that you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So let's unpack that phrase a little bit. Now, worldly wealth means the wealth of this world. Um, older translations use the phrase the mammon of unrighteousness as if there's something wrong about money itself which as I said there isn't obviously the pursuit of it can make people selfish and cause them to take advantage of others but wealth in and of itself is not sinful however it is attached to this world it is not something we take with us it belongs to this present life 
And for that reason, it tends to keep us focused on the self and the present age rather than God and the age to come. A wealthy woman died and the minister taking the funeral was asked, how much did she leave? To which he replied, she left everything. They always do. Our money is for this world only. And I think Jesus is, is making a similar point to the one he made in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, store up treasures in heaven. What did he mean by that? What does it mean to invest in eternity? Well, it means we should use our worldly wealth to support the work of the gospel and ministry and mission and aid primarily through the local church but also through other organizations and agencies that we can support directly. Um, now some Christians will only support gospel ministries, that is the ministries that are doing evangelism but um, I think now there's a much broader outlook on that uh, and uh, people want to support humanitarian work and social projects as well. Of course our priority is to get people out of hell into heaven but surely as part of our discipleship we must have a concern to relieve the hellishness of this world too. The specific use of our money isn't, isn't explained here. The point is about generosity, about using our wealth in such a way so that it brings blessing to others. And such actions will please God and show that we are his children. And that's one of the ways that we show the reality of our faith and our commitment to God. Our money doesn't last, so instead of relying on wealth, we should put it to beneficial use in a way that pleases God and serves him and and yes I do really believe that when we get to heaven the age to come uh, and there are people who've benefited from our giving um, that, that there will be they will be our friends uh, in the in eternal dwellings um, so invest in eternity uh, the second lesson is about faithfulness verses 10 to 12 Whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Um, so this is a more general point about the stewardship of all our resources, including our money. The point is that the way, the way we act in these areas of life reveals our character. Character is character, whether we're dealing with little things or big things. If you are unfaithful in small things, you will handle large things in the same way. But if you're faithful in small things, you will also handle large things in the same way. What you are will show regardless of the size of the ta task or responsibility. What that means is everything you do matters. Everything matters. Nothing is too small or insignificant. Because everything we do will reveal our character, the way we talk to people, uh, the way we do practical tasks. Everything reveals our character. Uh, verse 11 gives a specific example. If you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? 
there are things greater than money, but if you can't handle money, how can you handle greater things? And the greater things here are the true riches that contrast with worldly wealth. It's the spiritual blessings that Jesus has in view. Faithfulness in handling money is one of the signs that we're ready to take on greater spiritual responsibilities. How can anyone be given great spiritual responsibilities unless they prove themselves worthy in basic areas of discipleship? Things like how we handle our money. Verse 12 gives another example. If you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? If you can't look after someone else's things when there's no risk to yourself, how can you be trusted and given full responsibility for your own things? Well, I guess we shouldn't be too quick to spiritualize. It is true, of course, that faithfulness now will result in heavenly rewards and responsibilities, but the New Testament is fairly vague about that. But I think what where there is here is a contrast between the small things and the greater things. How we equip ourselves when faced with mundane tasks is a good test of how we'll fare with more responsible tasks. We're called to be faithful in whatever we do. It's a much needed but often overlooked quality. Churches can't function without people exercising faithful diligence and responsibility in, in practical tasks. It's the proving ground for whether we're suitable for greater responsibilities. And certainly when considering people for leadership, we need to be looking at uh, their practical service. So that's the second uh, lesson. The first one is invest in eternity. The second is about being faithful in small things. And then thirdly and finally, our ultimate focus. Verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money must not be the ultimate priority of our lives. A disciple cannot be faithful to two masters at once. We must choose. Loving one means hating the other. And money here is almost personified, treated as an idolatrous threat to God, which it can be. See, the, the Western world was built on something that is called the Protestant work ethic. Capitalism was controlled, really, within a moral framework. Now that moral framework seems to be collapsing and capitalism and hedonism go hand in hand. But under the Protestant work ethic, you had to save in order to spend. That was sort of one of the fundamental sort of values uh, in, in previous generations. You wouldn't spend unless you actually had the money save and then spend. Now we have instant credit and very few restraints. So money is a spiritual issue. It fuels the sin of avarice or greed and tragically those who are devoted to a desire to make money become consumed by it. 
and more importantly, everything becomes a commodity. We live in a world now where everything has a price tag. Everything is reduced to that uh, sort of level of financial value. And we lose a sense of what is really valuable and important. So Jesus talks about money as a rival spiritual power, an idol. And we need to rob it of its power by keeping it in perspective. So what's the best way not to be consumed by a love of money? It's to give it away. That's the message of the parable. We choose God over money by showing that we're not devoted to money. We serve God by putting our resources to use for others. And you see that, don't you, exemplified in the book of Acts, in those early chapters especially, giving and sharing and meeting the needs of others. The first Christians put the teachings of Jesus into practice and maybe we need to recover them. No one can serve two masters. And as Jesus uh, points out, the Pharisees loved money. In verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. <clears throat> you see, they didn't really love God. In fact, Jesus says they were just seeking to justify themselves in the sight of men. Taking their righteousness for granted, they concentrated on a manward religion of self-justification. But God saw their hearts. You cannot serve both God and money. So the parable then teaches three broad principles. Um, invest in the kingdom through generous giving. Be faithful in every area of life, but especially in small things, including the way we use our money. And we serve God by giving him our first and ultimate loyalty. So, as we wrap up, just a few more thoughts. How do we use our money? Some people may feel that's a very personal matter, and it is. Um, but it's also a spiritual issue. It's an aspect of discipleship. And since Jesus had so much to say about it, it's only right that when it comes up, we address it uh, and we, we take time to consider the issues. How do we use our wealth? Such as it is. Do we invest in this life only or in the life to come? No one in their right mind would invest in a company that you knew was uh, facing certain liquidation. That would be folly. So why then do we put all our energies into the pursuit of earthly things that cannot last? The heart is constantly being pulled earthwards. The reality is most of us living in the West have more than we need to live comfortably. Now, I guess we know there's greater disparity. The wealth is becoming more concentrated. Uh, more and more people are near the poverty line. Uh, that's a justice issue. Uh, that needs to be spoken about. But thinking just generally, uh, because living in the West, um, 
you know, our, the standard of living is, is rising, particularly for those who've got stable jobs and so on. Yes, there's desperate need, but in another sense, we've never had it so good. And yet giving to Christian organizations, churches and charities is going down. Generally speaking, younger generations don't seem to be as uh, committed to that aspect of discipleship. And older generations tend not to increase their giving over time. It stays the same. I know these are vast generalizations, but there is research behind it. Um, it's estimated that in America and Britain, Christians give away on average 3% of their income. Now, the Old Testament teaches tithing. That's 10%. The New Testament says, give as much as you are able according to your income. So for some, as Carla says many times, 10% is too much. You can't give what you haven't got. Give what you can. But for others, 10% is just the starting point. Giving should be cheerful and extravagant, not restricted by legalistic constraints. C.S. Lewis wrote, I'm afraid biblical charity is more than merely giving away that which we can afford to do without anyway. It's said that during the Crusades, the mercenaries were baptized holding their swords above the water because they didn't want Christ to control their swords. And they sometimes say, it's the same with our wallets. <laughs> Sadly, often the last thing to be converted. We spend four times as much on dieting than we do on mission. Sociologist Alan Stork, he says, consumerism is the chief rival to God in our culture. One church worked out that if everyone in the church was unemployed and tithed 10% of their social security money, annual church giving would increase 60%. Probably says a lot about that church, I don't know. But it makes you think, doesn't it? It makes you wonder why churches should ever be short of money. A minister got up one Sunday morning and announced to his congregation, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is that we have enough money to pay for our new building program. The bad news is it's still in your pockets. <laughs> now we can say the same about senior leader. I have good news. We, we have nearly 20 applications, um, many of them really strong. Uh, we will have a senior leader in place, I hope, before Christmas. <laughs> Sticking my neck out there. Um, but we need to pay for it. The money is in your pockets. The key to making the consumer society work is advertising and marketing, creating a sense of need based on desire. Advertising promises us fulfillment through buying consumer goods but it's a lie. The gospel sets us free from consumerism. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Have we learned how to be content? We can justify most things we do, but, but where does it stop? Are we content? 
G.K. Chesterton said there are two ways to get enough and to be content. One is to accumulate more and more, and the other is to desire less. Now, I haven't cracked this. Um, we're all uh, being challenged this morning. All I'm asking is that we take a serious look at our attitude to wealth, the amount of money we give to gospel work and the church and helping the poor. Keep it under constant review. Jesus said it, you cannot serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Consumerism is an enemy of the gospel. But we can defeat it by turning it on its head and using our wealth to invest in God's priorities and building his kingdom. But I say again, it is not wrong to be wealthy. But just remember, to those who much is given, much more is demanded. As Christians, we need to be different. We need to be countercultural. We need to show that we do not worship at the altar of consumerism. So let this morning just be a stimulus to think about these things, maybe put things in order, maybe change the way we go about things, ask for help, ask for advice, and be aware of the snare.